Welcome to the New Books and Anthropology podcast. I'm your host, Astrid County. Today we'll be speaking with Caitlin McDonald, editor of the book, Belly Dance Around the World, New Communities, Performance, and Identity. Ms. McDonald, along with Barbara Sellers-Young, have compiled a set of essays written by dancers and scholars from around the world about the role that belly dance plays in identity and community. Caitlin McDonald holds a PhD in Arabic and Islamic studies from the University of Exeter. She lives in London. Barbara Sellers-Young is a professor in the Department of Dance at York University in Toronto. But today we're talking with Dr. Caitlin McDonald about the book that she edited with Barbara Sellers-Young, Belly Dance Around the World, New Communities, Performance, and Identity. Hello, Dr. McDonald. Hi, Astrid. It's so nice to see you today. What inspired you to create this, this collection of essays? Well, it actually started with a panel uh, at the International Belly Dance Congress of Canada about three years ago, which was convened by Dr. Sellers-Young. Um, and several of the people who contributed to the book were a part of that panel. Um, and the panel, uh, the, the, the Congress was a mixture of um, dance workshops and um, academic and scholarly um, uh, workshops and um, other events focusing on belly dance, partly by um, dancers who work in the Middle East and also in the diaspora community of dancers around the globe. Um, so as a result of that panel, um, we, we kind of all got together at the end and we said, wow, that went so well. We should we should do a publication. Um, and then it took a while for that to get off the ground. Um, uh, there was some time where, you know, all of us were busy on other projects. But then about a year later, um, we got back together and said, we'd really like to do this. Um, let's try and get some more chapters and see if we, we would have a viable publication that we could we could do about this, because we think that um, there hasn't been enough focus on the globalization aspect of this community. Um, in a long time, and we think that this deserves some attention from the scholarly community. Uh, so that's how we got started with the book. What, in your opinion, is the belly dance community? Because like when I was reading this, I was really surprised at how dense this this topic was. I didn't know much about it, you know, outside of some of what I've seen. And as I read through some of the essays, it was clear that these communities are very different in different areas. But what, in general, would you call the belly dance community? That's a really good question because uh, many people will have very different answers about that. Some people feel that they're part of a, a, a kind of a global or overarching um, set of, of dancers who communicate with each other internationally and um, that they feel a tight-knit community with um, people from all around the world. Other people feel that um, they – I remember asking someone one time um, when they felt they joined the belly dance community as one of my research questions, and they said – Am I part of this community? I don't remember joining. I don't remember having a membership card or anything. And you're like, it's not like I got a toaster when I joined. Um, so, so some people have a very different relationship with um, with that. Although I would say that even people who are kind of skeptical of the idea of there being a, a kind of overarching community do feel that there is a strong um, sense of um, collegialship or even rivalry in many cases with with people that they clearly identify as being one of their set as opposed to, um, I guess you might call them non-dancers or civilians or people that are just watching. Um, and so that's, I think that there is a clear sense of, um, you know, even if there isn't necessarily um, a clear definition of what that community is, I think that people have a, um, a kind of internal guiding principle about who they think is a part of that community, who's in or out. Um, you know, and so I think that there's some clear defining boundaries within people's minds, even if those things don't agree. Um, so I would say for me, one of the fascinating things was how international the community really is and how much material is consumed by people in, in very different locations, physical locations that is shared across international boundaries. A lot of times through social media, through Facebook, um, through Twitter, 
sometimes Google Plus, things like that. Um, and, and what I found really fascinating was how in touch people were with one another. Um, and specifically also that um, people who are dancers who wouldn't necessarily consider themselves scholars, um, so they're not necessarily anthropologists like myself, um, mm-hmm. they, they, still ten, they still consume a lot of scholarly material. So they are interested in and they do read articles that are in dance journals and that are um, produced by people who are, are scholars. So that I also found very fascinating because it's, it's a tie that binds people in a way that I think some other dance communities don't have, that there isn't that strong scholarly tradition involved in, in many other um, dance schools and dance um, communities as well. Yeah, something I found quite striking, actually, was it seemed that this book wasn't necessarily a book about dance so much as it was a book about identity and how people use this as a means of building an identity, extending their identity. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that changes? Because there was some differences in the essays that were more concerned with the diaspora, and then some that were more specific to a particular place like Egypt or other parts of the Middle East. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. I think um, I think that within the various communities of dancers, there is a very strong sense of identity formation, and that this varies depending on the location that the dancer is in. Um, so as you say, um, in Egypt, there is a very strong connection with what dance means as an Egyptian. Um, and then when you move to, uh, when you look at something like um, an essay by one of the, our colleagues from New Zealand, there is a more of an examination of um, how the dance community, um, which has adopted a diasporic relationship with dance coming from the Middle East, um, relates to, for example, the Pakeha community of local indigenous um, New Zealand dancers and how they interact with different styles of dance that are coming together in in the same place and um, how that affects their sense of identity as New Zealanders. So there's a very different relationship of um, identity formation in different parts Mm -hmm. of the world. Um, And and sometimes that's very, it comes into conflict. Um, So our um, our chapter about Egypt, um, there was a a real sense from that author that um, there wasn't enough attention being paid by people from outside of the Middle East to what was going on in the Middle East at the time, and that the mm-hmm. reflections that were being put back to the Middle East were a lot more about um, the, the imagination of what the Middle East was rather than what is actually going on there. Um, so I thought that was really interesting compared to some of the other chapters, which were focused more on how positive they felt about the Middle East as a result of their interaction with the stance. Um, so there's some, there's some um, tension around um, whether this kind of globalization is a positive thing or not. So I thought that was very interesting. Yes. Um, something I did want to ask you about was there was some talk about Orientalism and mm-hmm. kind of this Western fascination and how this. Can you talk a little bit about some of the history behind this? Because I know that this is not the first time that there's this misinterpretation of what the Middle East is and what dance coming from the mis- Middle East even means mm-hmm. and how that has changed and maybe not changed over time. Absolutely. I mean, I think that we're in a very interesting period for studying any area studies, the Middle East, but also, um, you know, East Asia, other other area studies departments are, I think, struggling with um, some new challenges. Um, and I think specifically with reference to the Middle East, there is a specific discourse that's grown up around Orientalism, um, which obviously has become a huge part of how the Middle East is studied. And, and um, there is a, a self-reflexive relationship between um, many authors and their understanding of what that what that discourse is. But of course, that discourse has been challenged as being in its own right very problematic and having some um, theoretical issues that either are no longer related to um, current um, 
other theoretical themes that are emerging, or in some cases, um, just that they don't like it and it's wrong. Um, and so, uh, it's, which I think, um, I think there's a bit of both, actually. I think that there, it's, I don't think that Orientalism is dead, as many of my colleagues would, some of my colleagues would say. Um, oh, but I hope, think before you go on, can you yeah. just define Orientalism so it can be kind of clear for people who may not know? Mm -hmm. um, so Orientalism um, is a discourse that was um, principally outlined by um, Edward Said. Um, and I can't remember exactly what year that he put his book out in um, by the same name, Orientalism. Um, but his discourse was essentially, I'm going to summarize now, and there are going to be a lot of people who disagree with this particular interpretation, <laughs> but that's the risk you take as an academic. Um, so uh, so his, his discourse, a lot of his discourse was focused around the way that foreigners, um, especially foreigners who were traveling to the Middle East, and particularly he was looking at people like uh, um, uh, Flaubert, who traveled in Egypt, and some other um, people who were traveling in Egypt around that time in the mid-19th century, and a lot of... Um, uh, uh, a lot of the imperialist projects that became part of the shaping the history of the Middle East, a lot of this was founded on um, an imagination of what Eastern life was that was in opposition to Western life. And a lot of this was um, actually a reflection of Western cultural issues um, that was being kind of um, forced upon the, um, the Eastern ethos that um, was in not necessarily an accurate reflection of what was going on, um, but rather was an, an, this imagined um, uh, fantasy about the East and um, that this then had real implications for a lot of people in terms of how they were then treated or um, whether they were taken seriously. Um, and certainly the imperialist project um, that then resulted in a lot of countries being um, not having autonomy for a long time, um, then had a had a very um, negative power structure um, for for many people that were living in North Africa and, and other Middle Eastern areas um, and and I think that there is still some value in looking at the way that imagination has an effect on um, our perception of other cultures regardless of what culture we are in and what culture they are and so you know for me it's no longer such a big um, problem of saying well we have to worry about what's going on in the West and, and Oppositionally, what's outside the West? I think that there is still um, there. There's more of a, you know, no matter where we are, we need to think about what we imagine about others, and so it's more of a an internal, external, you know, self-other divide that is not necessarily centered around the West and the East. Um, mm -hmm. But I do think that there's um, there's still lots of um, self-reflection that needs to take place, um, and. You know, I don't think, like I said, I don't think that Orientalism is dead, but I think that there are some new and different um, manifestations of, of that happening. Um, I also think that we we live in a time where people are more aware because there simply is more global interaction. Um, and that whereas Edward Seed might be more inclined to feel that all of this imaginary, um, this imagined Orient was always negative, I'm not necessarily convinced that that's the case either. So I would say that that's the difference between um, the, the Orientalism image that has often been presented as a problematic thing and um, some of the other kinds of globalization discourse that are currently going on. So more so that in the, in the past, this concept of Orientalism was a lot more fantasy projection. And in more recent times, since we have a lot more interaction, then even though there still exists that misunderstanding, it has a lot more of, you're more able to find some truths that can actually be 
theme in other parts of the world and they can understand a little bit more about the culture. Is that what you're trying to say? I think that's partly true. I would also say that um, even I would say that one of the differences that I think is going on is that even if something is still a fantasy and still inaccurate, um, there might be less of a negative focus than there has been in the past. So, I mean, there still needs to be an awareness of how much is is fantastical in nature that we consume from other cultures rather than mm-hmm. taking everything at face value. Um, and uh, But that doesn't necessarily mean that a fantasy is always a negative thing, as long as it's being used with awareness, I think is, is what what I would say about some of the current discourse of globalization and current um, conceptions of Orientalism. So in your opinion, what is the relationship between um, North Africa, Middle East, and the belly dance that's practiced there, and the belly dance that's practiced in the diaspora and other aspects of the world? Very good question. I think that many people would say that in the Middle East, um, however you define that term, because obviously it's a very broad one and it means different things to different people. Certainly in my own research, which focused on Egypt, my focus was looking at, um, initially it was looking at dance as a social activity. And my interest was not so much dance in its professional context on a stage where it's, you know, you have a, an audience and a dancer and they're, they're kind of removed from one another. My curiosity was always about dance as it's in its use as a, um, a socially binding activity. Um, principally at celebrations like weddings um, mm-hmm. and, and other um, family-oriented celebrations. Um, even if that meant that there were um, separations, like traditionally um, you would have a wedding party that was gender segregated, um, but you'd find, for example, that the dancer was allowed in both the men's and the women's party, um, you know, the professional dancer that had been hired. But mm-hmm. once you're in the women's party, um, everybody was dancing. You know, all the women were dancing. So, so to me, the interest was in... Um, looking at dance as a social activity and how it brought people together. Um, I would say that in in the West, again, whatever that means to you, um, or in, in other diaspora communities, um, dance, um, because certainly I would say in the States and in Britain where I live now, um, there is, of course, social dancing. There's social dancing everywhere you go. Um, but a lot of times dance is thought of as being um, a performance that is more structured, that is not necessarily a social activity, but it's, it's more of a performance-based activity. Um, and as a result of that, um, some of the focus on community life and family life um, is not as present, um, though there is a strong um, sense of community that emerges in many of these places as a result of people um, who are maybe not necessarily professional dancers, but they go to a lot of classes or they become involved in a lot of dance-based events in their local communities as amateur dancers, and they, they never wanted to be professionals. They never wanted to do it full-time, or they do it, you know, as semi-professionals. And they, um, in that way, you still have a strong community, but it's different than what it would be in the Middle East. Um, so I would say that's one of the differences that I see, is the more of a... Um, professionalization outside. I mean, certainly there are also professional dancers in the Middle East, but um, there's a more, there's a different relationship with what dance signifies when it's in that, in that setting than when it's being done in the home um, among friends or among family for fun. Um, I'm glad you brought up the, the wedding, the Egyptian wedding, because I did have a question about the complexity of, of how belly dance is viewed in Egypt, because I do remember reading a part where, there was a discussion about how oftentimes you do have belly dance as seen as traditional at the weddings in Egypt. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it's not necessarily something that 
people feel the need to learn. They don't, even though it's considered to be traditional, it's not something that you would go send your children to go learn, like how some people might view ballet in France, that it's part of their tradition. So you send your daughters to ballet school, but the same kind of connection isn't made in Egypt. Can you talk a little bit about how that role of dance, especially when it comes to identity and then your body awareness, how that changes depending upon where you are in Egypt and, and your role in society? Sure. Um, I think you're looking at possibly Noah Rushdie's and Candice Bordelon's chapters and, and when you're looking at those kind of things. Um, mm-hmm. And I did some research on that myself in Egypt as well. Um, there, there is, and, and there's a very famous woman called Karen Van Nukuk who's, who wrote it, um, a very in-depth ethnography of dance in Egypt um, in the 1980s and early 1990s. And um, the, her focus, um, her research essentially pointed out that Historically in Egypt, though people will dance privately, um, you would not want a daughter who was a dancer professionally. That is just not acceptable. Um, to become a performer, there, there are a number of reasons. There's a number of um, overlapping reasons why that is the case. One is that, um, you know, unless you are um, a, a manual worker or a laborer, um, it's very unusual in Egyptian society historically, now not so much, to have a woman who's working outside the house, and that is um, considered to be without honor. Um, I would say, again, that's not the case now. You see plenty of Egyptian women who work in offices and, and all kinds of places. Um, and uh, and specifically, earning money for any kind of bodily performance to some mm-hmm. it's with um, utterly being without honor. And um, mainly what you would find is that families who were performers historically um, were generational. So you'd have dancers who um, had then daughters who were dancers or musicians who had daughters who were dancers, and you would not find them from other social classes. So, Caitlin, then concerning how and when it's appropriate to show, like, to have a belly dancer in the room, is it okay? I know it's okay in Egyptian weddings, but not necessarily something you would go do you know, just on the weekend with your family. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. This is some more conservative society. And how does, it seems as though dance itself kind of is allowed to break some rules and brings classes together that would not normally be together. So why do you think it's able to do that? Mm, I'm not sure that I would agree with that necessarily. Um, I think you might find that in your own family, it's absolutely fine to dance in a private setting. Um, and you might find that another family has the same um, same situation, but that you would never do it together necessarily. Um, so uh, I'm not sure I would agree that it does bring classes together in conservative societies. Um, I would say I'm that... I'm sorry, I um, didn't put it in that way. Yeah. I mean that they're actually together. Yeah. I mean that different yeah. classes will engage in okay. watching dance. Um, I think there's lots of behaviors that you could observe in, that have a similar similar ethos, though. Um, I, I do think that, um, again, with globalization, lots of things have changed. So um, in Nohad Rushdie's chapter, um, she talks about the fact that currently there are plenty of places where you can go in Cairo and, and go to a nightclub and you can dance, uh, or they will play music that is traditionally considered Egyptian dancing music, and people will dance in a Western style, or they will dance um, in Egyptian style, and, and that's that's normal. Um, people are mixing. Um, you know, there's a there's a thriving salsa dancing scene in Cairo, for example. I mean, there's there's all kinds of uh, things that change um, that have changed in the last 20 years. Um, at the same time, there's also an increasing conservative backlash. Um, so Karen Van Newkirk, again, who um, who wrote that long term study, 
in Egypt about 20 years ago. Um, over over time, she returned, and you know, her articles talk about um, uh, many of the dancers that she knew who had been dancers in their youth. As they grew older, their families became more conservative, and um, they were no longer allowing their children to have dancers at their weddings, for example, because they became more religious. Um, so there's, I think, there's a real, um, uh, a real kind of strong, what's the word, dichotomy between um, attitudes um, in Egypt, but also in many other places, about how people feel about what makes dance appropriate and what situations it is appropriate and what situations it is is not appropriate. Um, so I feel that we're very fortunate to have a range of chapters that kind of look at that in, in the book. Yeah, one thing I wanted to start talking about now is your research in Second Life and how belly dance is used in Second Life. So can you, well, first explain what Second Life is and then talk a little about the research that you did and then some of the conclusions that you drew from that. Sure. Um, so Second Life is an online uh it's not really a game exactly because it's, um, there's no kind of goal. There's no overarching um, gameplay that you enter into. It's, it's more an online virtual world that people can enter and um, you can walk around different parts of the, 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 the virtual world inside and take up a, a, a variety of activities. You can become a market trader. Um, you can fly around. You can, you can dance in, in various places. Uh, you can play music. You can do all kinds of different things. Um, and I would say Second Life is kind of becoming less popular now than it was when I was doing the research. But at the time, um, there were lots of people who were using it because it was a free online service and it was interesting and new. Um, and one of the things that was happening in Second Life, which I found out from a, a real-life informant, was that there was a thriving belly dance community in there. And what this means in the context of a virtual world is that you, your avatar, which is like your little physical representation inside the game, um, will take a, an animation, um, so like a, a, a computer program, essentially, and you click on the computer program, and then it causes your avatar to dance. So um, people did performances. Um, you could dance spontaneously. Um, you can run these animations at different times. Um, and they were available either for free or for purchase. And... Um, and I found this so incredibly weird because I did not understand why anybody would want to do something that was such a physical activity in a virtual world. You know, it's not like um, fantasy football, for example, where you actually have a scoring system. So even though it's a fantasy, you still have an actual game that's happening, um, even though it's not the same as doing looking at real football, for example, or playing real football. Um, with this, I was like, this is like if you were virtually baking cookies. I don't really understand why you would do this, um, you know, um, but... Then the more I thought about it, um, you know, and of course, lots of assumptions were made by myself and, and other people I was speaking to about this at the time, um, that people were doing it because they couldn't dance in real life or um, that they wouldn't dance in real life. Um, and it was something that was completely alien to them and it was very foreign and they were using this as some kind of weird, exotic fantasy world um, and that everything about it was alien. Um, and in reality, what I found was... Um, Many of the people who were dancers in Second Life were also dancers in real life or maybe had been dancers in real life for a long time and for whatever reason had stopped taking classes. But that for them, it wasn't something that was outside of their lives, their regular lives. It was something that was embedded in their regular lives. And here was an extension. You know, Second Life, in the end, it wasn't something that they were doing which was experimental. It was something that was an extension of their actual personalities. Um, and so, for example, one of the reasons that lots of people said that they did it online was because um, either they'd stopped taking classes and they could, or they couldn't get to them for whatever reason um, anymore, um, or for them, 
Um, for example, costumes were much cheaper to buy online. You know, you might pay a dollar, a dollar and a half for a costume for your avatar, whereas in real life, you might pay $200 for a costume, freshly made costume. You know, there were major dance in a, in a virtual setting. Um, so it, it occurred to me that this is, was a strong demonstration that um, dance is not, a, not just about the act of dancing, you know, though that's very enjoyable. It's also about the community of dancers that you form, of like-minded people that you find um, when you take up dance. So that became further indication for me that there wasn't just a relationship with the physical movement or the technique, but that there was also a relationship with um, mindset and with people. So I, I found that fascinating. It sounds kind of as though the dance, like how we were first discussing, is so intricately related to the identity of the person and how they see themselves. Um, from the research that you've done, how does the dancer themselves see where they and how do they view their, their place and what they're doing and their performance and what it means? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that varies from dancer to dancer. I think that it has a very individual meaning for each person that I interviewed. Um, and especially when you're looking at someone who is choosing to dance um, online, they have very unique reasons for doing that. I didn't, I mean, to some extent, there was an overarching theme of. Um, wanting to remain connected to dance or, um, you know, in their, in their online as well as offline life, but they had different reasons for connecting with the dance in the first place. So um, it was, for many people, it was um, a way of remaining fit. For others, it was something that allowed them to express a part of themselves that was outside of what they normally feel that they're able to express. Um, in, in other cases, um, there was an exoticization element to it. It was like, I, I don't get to experience all of these you know, beautiful silky fabrics in my usual life, and here's a way that I get to do that. Um, you know, for some others, it was also about um, finding something positive in the Middle East, um, which um, for some people, um, they, especially Americans and, and other North American people, um, they they maybe felt that there was a lot of tension um, around Middle Eastern cultural products and that they felt that dance for them was a positive thing that they'd experienced and that they wanted to um, share with others. Um, so there were lots and lots and lots of reasons why people chose to take up dancing. So. What do you think are some of the main takeaways that you hope that a reader would get from this body of research or the whole book? I think one of the important aspects of our research was um, I think two things. One is that um, we believe that dance is a very important part of social life, and we believe it's under understudied, um, especially dance in a social context. And so it was very important to us to um, be able to further that research and to allow people to examine reasons for social dancing and to acknowledge that there is a lot of social dancing around the world. Um, I think the second thing that we really cared about was um, looking at the effect that globalization um, and technology is having on how people communicate, not just about dance, but about other things, um, and how many of these things are identity formation related. Um, so for us, um, we were looking at the dance community, but you could also um, extrapolate some of these findings to other kinds of communities of like-minded either hobbyists or um, people who share an interest in, it, in a range of things. You know, um, and, and we thought that was very a very key portion of the research was looking at the identity formation and um, cross-cultural communication aspects of what we were um, what we were examining. So, Caitlin, can you tell us what some of your next projects will be or some of the things that you're working on right now? 
Absolutely. Um, at the moment, um, I am working outside of academia, um, but I still try and stay in touch and, and do as much as I can publishing-wise and, and attending conferences. And um, one of the things I am really continuing to be curious about is representations of dance in non-physical context. So um, when I look at, for example, animations of dance in um, Xbox games um, or um, in, in other kinds of platforms um, like um, maybe online apps, things like that, I find, um, I, I find it really interesting how those things are programmed and um, what degree of care is given to particular aspects of um, the way the movement is represented. Um, and so for me, I'm really curious about um, the, the choices the programmers make when they're making these games, um, and I would really like to do more research in that area. Um, I think that um, I know that Barbara is about to come up come out with a second book um, shortly. Um, I can't remember the name, but I can try and get that to you offline and you can include that in the summary. Um, and many of our, our um, contributors are going on to new projects. So there's a lot going on in this in this area, and um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what everybody else has coming out in the near future. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. It was my pleasure. Today you have been listening to a discussion with Ms. Caitlin McDonald about her book, Belly Dance Around the World, New Communities, Performance, and Identity. This book is published through McFarland Press and is currently available. 